start a new series in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are those little blessed are statements at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that, that name Beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, which simply means to be blessed. And the Beatitudes are the blessed are's. Uh, what does it mean to be blessed? That's, I think, what we need to establish first today. Um, very often, uh, that term is just sort of defined as being happy. To be blessed is to be happy. And that's how we most often used it. use it. If something good happens, you know, uh, we say, I'm so blessed. I got a raise. I got a promotion. I, I you know, I, I'm blessed. Um, I remember uh, many, many, many years ago, my... My dear friend Tim Milner is here this morning. Good morning, Tim. Tim's father-in-law was a uh, well-known preacher, and he did a series on the Beatitudes called the Be Happy Attitudes. And I remember that series very well. What I want to propose in the course of our series is that to be blessed is actually something much more profound and much deeper than simply being happy. Now, certainly a state of blessedness would include a sense of contentment, a sense of peace, a sense of joy, a sense of well-being. I think all of those things would be a part of it. But I think there's something much, much more than that. And here's what I'll present to you. I believe that blessed is a condition of our soul that comes from God. I've uh, been reading in preparation for this series... John Stott's commentary on the Beatitudes. And by the way, I'll just recommend that book to you. Comment, I don't always, I, don't, I, tip, I recommend books to you guys. I don't usually recommend commentaries because commentaries are commentaries. They're kind of theological and they're just sort of explanatory. Let me say this. Stott's commentary on Sermon on the Mount is like a devotional. I mean, you, you read it and you just go, oh, oh, so good. John Stott says, it is seriously misleading to render makarios, the great Greek word blessed, happy. For happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He is declaring not what they feel like, happy, but, and this is the kicker right here, but what God thinks of them and what on that account they are. They are blessed. You're blessed because God says you're blessed whether you're happy or not. Okay, so some days we feel blessed and we go, I'm so blessed, I'm happy. Some days we don't, but I want to say this, that doesn't change. You're still blessed because God says you're blessed. You're his people. That's who we are. That's what it's all about. So the title of our series is Blessed Revolution. My uh, research assistant and I were trying to come up with a title for this, this series and we we're kind of kicking around things and we that's what I finally land on blessed revolution the kingdom of god is a revolution the very essence of the kingdom of god is non-conformity it is to revolt against um the status quo really it's to revolt against normal it's to revolt against average it's to revolt against everything that our society and our culture says this is the way it should be so the beatitudes uh the beatitudes are the introduction to jesus sermon on the mount this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. A little bit later in the sermon, he actually gives us what I believe is the theme or the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. It's do not be like them. So it's really to be different. That's what this is all about. 
it, it really is a, a, a revolution, and it's a, it's a blessed revolution. It's a revolution of blessing, uh, and I hope, my heart is that over the next few weeks as we share on this series that we'll see that it's a revolution of love, it's a revolution of humility, it's a revolution of service, it's a revolution of sacrifice, and, and here's, this is the one thing I want to try to communicate as much as anything, it's a revolution of beauty. It really is. It's a revolution of embracing the beauty of who Jesus is in our daily lives. So what I'm going to do is a little unorthodox because I'm going to start at the end. Tim said this morning, you're going to give him the punchline first. You're going to start at the bottom and work back. We're actually going to, I'm going to give you the end today, but then we'll go back to the beginning and start over. But we're going to talk this morning about salt and light and what it means to be salt and light. I'm going to, uh, true confessions, okay? We're all, we're all in this together, right? Uh, I'm going to share, I, I've been preparing for this series for a couple months. And a weird thing happened to me as I was preparing. I'm reading John Stott, and I'm reading other people on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and I'm listening to other sermons on the Beatitudes, and um, I, I started to get kind of convicted. I don't really like that, to be honest. And, and I'm going to be really honest. I'm going to say, as, as the teacher, preacher, person, there's a temptation that arises at that moment. And the temptation is, I could kind of just soften this up a little bit. I could, I could dial this back a little bit, make it a little more palatable and easy to swallow, Right? That would be the easy thing to do. But the truth is this, if I do that, I'll never get past where I am today. This is the end. And if, if I have any responsibility in your growth, you won't either. And so let me say this, some of what I might say might make you a little uncomfortable, but I don't think God's called us to be comfortable. I just don't. I, I learned something years and years ago. John Wimber said something that has stuck with me and was applicable in this situation. And he said, you teach the Bible, not your experience. <gasps> oh, my gosh. See, <laughs> when I get excited, my voice cracks. I. Uh, if the Bible says God heals and we're not experiencing healing in our midst right now, we teach that the Bible heals until we see it happen. We don't stop because it's not happening. If the Bible says you're a new creation in Christ, then I teach you're a new creation in Christ even when we don't feel like a new creation in Christ because if we don't hold on to that, we'll never be a new creation in Christ. And here's the thing. If the Bible says this is what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ and we don't see that in our own lives, we have to teach that or we'll never get there. Okay? All right. Let's pray. That's just the intro. God, thank you. Uh, we love you, and we pray you would just uh, let me honor your word today, Lord. Amen. Um, I'm going to read the entire Beatitudes, verses 1 through 16, and then we're going to focus in on the last few verses. But I want to read the whole thing just for context this morning. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. 
his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. (laughs) I don't know what that's about. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. How many of you ever felt blessed under those circumstances? Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 1 is important. Jesus draws a distinction here, and this distinction becomes very important throughout the rest of our series. He says, says, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to them, and he began to teach them. There's a very important distinction there that Matthew draws between the crowds and the disciples. Now, throughout the Gospels, if you do a little word search on Bible Gateway, and if you were in my How to Study the Bible class, you know how to do that. Uh, You look up crowds, and you'll see something interesting. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the crowd, there's a lot of crowds. crowds. Crowds, 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 Everywhere Jesus went, there's crowds. Crowds followed him all over the place. And really, it, it, the crowds kind of become this backdrop to everything Jesus does. But I think what we'll see as we go is that the crowds are kind of fickle. They, 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 I think they want to be entertained. Uh, they want to see what's in it for them. Uh, and then when Jesus says things they don't like, they, they kind of back off a little bit. And, and, and although the crowds are huge, very few of them actually become disciples. So the context really is this. Jesus is ju- this is the very beginning of his ministry. Um, you know how when something new happens and it's kind of the buzz and everybody's talking about it. Well, that's what happened. Jesus showed up and all of a sudden there was this buzz. Hey, have you heard about this guy? This guy is different. We, we, we think this guy might be the Messiah. This guy could actually be, have you heard it again? This guy does miracles over here. Let's go check it out. He's, I, this, he teaches with authority. We've never heard anybody like this before. Now, at this point, Jesus already has some disciples. He has a few people that he has called, and they have committed themselves to following him. They've said, uh, we are, we, we're willing to follow you. They've made a sacrifice. They've already, he said, you leave it all behind and you come follow me. They said, okay, we're in. They are now under his authority, under his teaching, under his discipline. They've made a commitment. They're there. He's talking to them. The crowds are in the background listening in. The crowds are curious. They, they want to know what he's going to say and what he's going to do next. And, and look, I'm going to be really honest here. You guys know this. 
Some of them just want to see a train wreck. Right? See something happen, everybody goes, oh, let's see what's going to go on over here, right? Um, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and the crowds are listening in. And that's important, and this is why it's important. Because what Jesus is teaching here is a description of what it looks like to follow him. Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is what it means to be my disciple. If you're my disciple, this is what you'll do. This is a description of what a person looks like when he follows Jesus. These are not, the Beatitudes are not rules. They're not commandments. They're not oughts or shoulds. And and to be quite frank, they're not intended for general consumption. He's not saying, this is the way everybody should be. He's saying, if you follow me, this is what you'll be like. Okay, do you understand the difference there? He's not saying, try to be poor in spirit. Try, try to mourn, try to be meek. No, he's simply saying this. If you follow me, that's what your life will look like. These are like markers of a Christian life. They're like road signs. And I would say this to you. If you're like me and you get a little convicted and you, you see these things and you hear these things and you go, I don't know if my life's really like that. The goal or the, or the, 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 the solution isn't to try harder. The solution is to get on the right road. Okay. All right, say amen. All right, that's good. You guys are good. We can be a little Pentecostal, you know. You're the salt of the earth. What does he mean by you are the salt of the earth? Um, in the ancient world, okay, let's, it's not a whole lot different than today. Salt was used as a preservative for food and flavoring for food. We don't use it. We have refrigerators now, so we don't use salt as a preservative very often anymore, really. Uh, you know, maybe if you're out in the woods and you shoot a bear, you got you've salted to get it back. I don't know, but we do use it for flavoring, right? In fact, you know, you, you, we have designer salt today, right? At home on my counter there, I've got my little salt grinder with my pink Himalayan salt. And when I'm cooking a steak, I put a little pink salt on it. It's gonna be good. Whew. Uh. Now I've completely lost track. I'm just thinking ribeye right now. Um, so the metaphor that, that Jesus is using, salt, is to be preservative and flavoring in the world. Salt of the earth, okay? Now, here's the thing. There are different interpretations in the church today as to how we do that. How do we become the salt of the earth? There's a very common uh, thought, a very common approach to that uh, among evangelical Christianity today that to be salt, that we preserve, we're to preserve the morality of the culture. And we do that by, by sort of being the guardians and defenders of all that's good and right and we kind of, the blanket sort of covering over that as traditional values. We're going to be the guardians of traditional values. And while that's sort of pervasive all the time, you really see that kind of ratcheted up a little bit right around now, around election cycles, okay? And in every election since, you know, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln, or at least Eisenhower in my life, there's always one candidate that runs on that platform. Traditional values. I'm going to be the guy that's going to stand for traditional values. 
And how am I going to do that? I'm going to pass laws to stop sinners from sinning, right? That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to point the finger at my sin, but I got those other people's sins that I would like to stop. That's just a little side commentary. I've got a couple problems with that approach. The first one is that you cannot legislate morality, and you can quote me on that. Good, thank you. Uh, morality is a condition of the heart, and you can't pass a law and change somebody's heart, okay? There's only one thing that can change somebody's heart as far as I'm concerned. We'll talk about that in a minute. The other little problem with that that I see is this, okay? Let's just be kind of, Jesus is the bullseye, right? He's the target. What do we want to be like? We want to be like Jesus. Let me ask you a question. When, where do you ever see Jesus doing that? Passing laws to stop people from sinning. Well, you don't. Um, Can I... uh, You know, I'm, I, I think this. I, I just, I'll go ahead and say it. I think if Jesus showed up today, I don't know that the conservative religious right-wing movement would accept him. I honestly think they'd have a problem with Jesus. Jesus hangs out with the exact people that they're trying to pass laws against. I think if Jesus was here today, he'd go hang out with some gay people. I don't know that those people would be very accepting of Jesus. This is what I see. Sinners are drawn to Jesus. Sinners love Jesus. They they follow him everywhere he goes. It's the religious people that hate him. The sinners know that this is one guy that will accept me. If whatever it means to be salt of the earth, I don't think it means to legislate morality and tell everybody else what they're going to do. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? How come we can't figure that out? It's not my job to tell everybody else what to do. My job is to listen to God and do what he tells me to do. That's my job. And if you think it's your job to be the morally superior guardians of traditional value, I would submit I think you're doing exactly the opposite of Jesus. We are not supposed to be morally superior to anyone. You know why? I'll just tell you, because we're not. Okay? Uh, I'm going to be honest. That's not being meek. That's being arrogant. That's not being persecuted. That's being the persecutor. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says it is to be blessed. Kingdom people, it's not our job to be morally superior to anybody. Paul said something else that's kind of interesting. The Apostle Paul. Paul. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Of whom I'm the worst. That's our attitude. I love the words this morning. Where does it start? With me. Where does it start? With me. That's where it starts. You you, want to get get things right in the world? Start with me. Um, Look, guys, 
We, if we really understand who we are in Christ, we'll be the most humble people on the planet because we realize, I got nothing. I got nothing outside of Jesus. I got nothing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, here we go. I, I'm not a theologian. I don't have a... I didn't go to seminary. I didn't even go to college. I barely got out of high school. Um, I, I think this, though. I think if you want to know what the Bible means when it says something, you should look at what the Bible says about that. It's just a thought. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Does the Bible say anything about salt? I don't know. Let's find out. It's interesting. Leviticus. Whoa. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Offerings you're bringing to the Lord, season them with salt. That's in the Bible. Do not leave the salt of the covenant. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The salt of the covenant? Do not leave the salt of the covenant off of your uh, covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. That's weird. Numbers. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your perpetual share. It is, what? An everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring? Huh? What the heck is that about? Second Chronicles 13. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever? I didn't make this stuff up, kids. By a covenant of salt. Ezra, I love Ezra. Named my kid after him. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasures of trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever the Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Okay, so let me say this. God chose salt as a sign of his covenant with his people. That's weird. I don't get it. I didn't pick it. He did. But I just have come to the conclusion that God's God and he can do what he wants. I don't know that I would have chosen salt. God did. Salt is a sign of the covenant. Salt is a sign that something has been set aside for God. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be a sign that, that this earth, this world, these people have been called and set aside to God. Our presence in the world should be something that consecrates this world and makes it right. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, right? And on the cross, through his death and resurrection, what did Jesus do? He established a new covenant, a covenant that said, I love you this much. This is my covenant to you. Uh, I receive you unto myself by taking your sin upon me and, and freeing you from Satan's hold on your life. Our job as disciples is to say yes to that, yes to that, to live our lives in a way that says, hey, there's a God out there who has a covenant that says he'll love you with an everlasting love. That's what it means to be salt of the earth, to tell people that salt is an ongoing reminder to people that are trapped in darkness 
that God loves them with an everlasting love. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. It's a reminder that God wants everybody to be in. God wants everybody to be a part of that. We are an invitation into covenant relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. You too can have a covenant relationship with Jesus. You too can come to know this God who loves you like this. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. We are to live in love as Christ was loved. God doesn't hold our sins against us, so we shouldn't hold other people's sins against them. God loved us while we were still enemies, so we should love our enemies. That's, the, that's salt of the earth. If we're living the Beatitudes, that's what our lives will look like. And I submit, I think that's exactly the opposite of most of what we see done today. Uh, here's, here, I got something. Here's the, this is the big what for right here. This is the key. Here, here's the, uh, this, you, this is profound. Are you ready? Get your pens out. For salt to be able to preserve and or flavor meat, it has to be first different than the meat. It's distinct. If, if the salt is meat, it's not salty. It's meat, right? So it has to be different than the meat, but it also has to be where? In direct contact with the meat. Hello? You have to be different than the meat, but in direct contact with the meat. If you're, if you're meat, you're not salt, but if you're salt, if you're going to flavor the meat, you've got to be on the meat. <laughs> I've had a lot of coffee. Uh, I, think, I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said we're in the world but not of the world. If you're, if you're salty, you can't be over here and you're, you can't be a prepper in your little, I'm sorry, your little, I'm hiding because the bad people are coming. And that's not salty. You've got to be out there. All right. Good night. I've been with Milner for three days. I can start hooting any minute. You are the light of the world. Talk about light for a minute. It's nicer. You're the, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, so light's a little easier. Light. Obviously, right, it's different than the dark, right? Light, dark, we get that. Um, it allows people to see what is true. How many of you have ever had an experience where it's dark and you see something and it's scary and you think it's a bad thing and then you turn on the light and it's really your jacket that you threw over the back of the chair, right? Things in the dark don't look like what they really are, but you turn the light on and you see what's true. That's what light does. The other thing light does, and this is, what G, this is what Matthew is referring to when he talks about a city on a hill, that's an actual thing, right? People are traveling at night. Back in the day, they didn't have street lights and road signs and all the stuff we have today. They're walking on a road at night. It's dark, and they don't know which way to go, but they look ahead, and they see the city on the hill. The lights are on. They go, oh, we'll go there. That's where we need to go, to the city on the hill. So that's what he's saying. We're to be a light. We're, we're, to, we're to be a place that people can come to find safety, a place that people can come to find truth, a place that people can come to find rest. That's what it means to be a city on a hill. 
Uh, here's the thing. There's people all around us every day in darkness. And most of them don't know they're in the darkness. You know when you're in a dark room for a while and your eyes kind of adjust and you can sort of find your way around and you can kind of see a little bit but then somebody turns a light on and you realize how dark it really was. I tell you, I think there's a lot of people walking around darkness that don't know they're in the dark. And our job is to show them the way, to flip the switch and lead them to a place of trust, a place of rest, a place of safety. I don't know if you remember on Easter I said the new you is the true you. Part of what we have to do is show people who they really are in truth. Now, let me say this. We don't need to tell people how wretched they are. They already know that. Okay? Here's what we need to tell them. We need to tell them how much they're worth. We need to tell them how valuable they are and how much Jesus loves them and how precious they are to him. That's what we need to tell them. Donald Trump thinks that Women who have had abortions should be punished. And I guess he doesn't understand that a woman who's had an abortion has already been punished. That she has had to make a decision that no one should ever have to make. That she's been forced into a place where she's had to live under the weight and the burden of guilt and shame. She's been stigmatized. And she has struggled with the ability to forgive herself for her own decision. And so... I don't think a woman who's had an abortion needs to be punished. I think a woman who's had an abortion needs to know that Jesus loves her and that nothing she's ever done or ever could do will ever change that, that that's rock solid. She needs to know that she's already been forgiven and that Jesus wants to take the guilt and the shame that she feels today and exchange it for healing and wholeness and forgiveness and a new identity in him. And I have words, and those are the best words. Jesus loves you, okay? Jesus loves you, Donald Trump. Amen. The purpose of salt is to be salty. And the purpose of light is to shine. And that's our job. That's our job. Our job is not to be better than anybody else. Our job is to lead people to safety. And we cannot lose sight of that. That was Israel's problem. In the Bible, Israel, not today. Not going there. Israel's problem was they forgot that part. Peter nails it. Boom. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Amen. That's what we are. Why are we that? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We're that for a reason. We're not that so we can say we're better than you. We're that so that we can say, no, we got something that we want you to share. It's good. Come on down. I'll close with this. Uh, you remember the crowds? Crow crowds thought that there was something in it for them. The crowds are asking this question, what can Jesus do for me? The disciples, 
those that have already committed their life to Christ are asking this question, how can Jesus use me to help others? And that's a huge differentiation. What's in it? What can Jesus do for me versus what can Jesus use, how can Jesus use me to help other people? I think this, the crowds are fickle. They come and they go. We know that. Hosanna, Hosanna, crucify him, crucify him. The goal is to make disciples, not crowds. So my question today is, are we making disciples? No, I'm just kidding. A car crash will draw a crowd. Sometimes. The church measures success by crowds. Jesus measures success by following him. Okay, let's stand.